Chapter 22 of The Great Sinners of the Bible. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Osadumabe. The Great Sinners of the Bible by Lewis Albert Banks. Chapter 22 A King in Hiding. And the Lord answered, Behold, he had hid himself among the stuff. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 22. It was the day for Saul's ordination as king, but he was timid about it, and driven to a panic at last, he hid himself among the camp equipage, so that when the moment arrived to ordain a king, the king could not be found. Then it was that the Lord made known unto them the whereabouts of the cowardly Saul, and they went and found the foolish fellow where he was hiding and brought him forth. It wouldn't have looked so absurd if he had been a little fellow, but he was a great, tall, splendid-looking man, head and shoulders higher than any other man in all the camp, and he must have looked and felt silly enough when they brought him out from his hiding place. He looked every inch a king when once he was brought forth and the crown was on his head, but he had hidden away among the pack saddles like some silly boy. I have recalled this picture for our study this evening because it suggests the great truth that we are constantly in danger of losing the most important things in life by hiding them among the stuff, concealing them among things that are of little importance compared to what is hidden. A young man comes to the city to make his life career. He has been reared in an honest, wholesome Christian home. He has in his veins the honourable blood of a good man and a good woman who have feared God and eschewed evil. The traditions of his family, no matter how poor it may be, are all honourable, straightforward and noble. The son comes into the great marketplace of the city and offers his young and vigorous manhood in the exchange in search of fortune. He thrusts himself into the thick of life, works hard, early and late, struggles and succeeds. 10, 15, 20 years go by, and people point to him and say, what a success he has made. He came here with nothing, and now he has a fortune. But I get closer to him, and I begin to seek for the wholesome standard of honour which he brought to town with him years ago. I hunt for that genuineness and integrity with which he began his career, that keen sense of right and wrong which once held him to a frank and manly course, and I cannot find it. Instead, I find that he has compromised with the tricks and intrigues and shady methods which men use who make haste to be rich. He has hidden his manhood among the stuff. A young king came to town, but he has been hidden and lost among the camp equipage. Another man gives himself up to pleasure. How to have a good time is the one query of every day. He becomes a mere plaything, a toy in social life. Anything that tickles his fancy, that gives him a new sensation is his attraction. It may take a hundred ways of showing itself. He may be a flirt and develop into a silly butterfly given to soft dalliance with equally silly women. He may develop into a dude and become simply a clothes horse on which to show the changing fashions of the tailor. He may become theatre-struck 
and give himself over to the imaginary tragedies and farces of the stage. It may be that the pleasures of the appetite attract him, and he turns toward the path of the glutton and the wine-bibber. Back at the first, he only meant to have a good time and had no evil or malicious purpose in it, but the serious purpose to do honest work for God and man, to be of some real value to the world in which he lives, to make the best and noblest man out of himself, in order that the world may be a nobler and better place because he has lived in it. All that he has hidden among the stuff. There was a king in him, but search for the king now, and you will find him hidden away and lost in the mere fur bellows and husks of life. What folly it is for men to hide the king in them among the stuff. For all these other things for which men hide their manhood are very transient and soon pass away. It is a remarkable fact that the most conspicuous examples of the men who have been preeminent in those characteristics that men count most to be desired have come to notably inglorious ends. Men struggle to attain strength and are full of admiration for it. And yet Samson, the strong man who could rend a lion in his hands, who could slay 3,000 of the enemies of his country with a bludgeon in his naked hand, hid his strength amid the mere stuff of folly and sin and came to a miserable old age and a pitiful death. Absalom, who was famous as the most handsome man of his age and whose beauty and brilliant qualities stole away the hearts of the people of a great city and nation, died the death of a dog. Ahithophel, the diplomat of Jerusalem in the brilliant days of King David, hid his honour amid the stuff of time-serving and policy and hanged himself with his own hand. Alexander the Great made conquest of the earth, but died by poison at the end of a career which had mastered everything but himself. He had made himself king of the world, but lost the inner kingdom of his own manhood. When men come to the end of life, they find that everything is stuff except the quality of the manhood itself. Then, if a man has traded off or covered up manhood for money or power or pleasure, he realizes how he has been cheated. All the things that men struggle for that are outward are but stuff when the great emergencies of life come. In the reign of King Henry VI, there is mention made of Henry Beaufort, a rich and wretched cardinal, who lying on his deathbed and perceiving his time to be cut short, expostulated with himself thus, Wherefore should I die, being thus rich, if the whole world were able to save my life? I am able either by policy to get it, or by riches to buy it. Fi-fi, will not death be hired? Will money and power do nothing? But he found that they could not do anything. Such is the impartiality of death, that unlimited money will do nothing. There is no protection against the arrest of death. In such an hour, how like stuff seems everything that has interfered with the development of the kingly qualities of the soul. There is a suggestion, I think, of great encouragement in the statement here, that it was the Lord who kept track of Saul, knew where he was hidden, and told them where to go and get him that they might bring him forth to his crowning. So, my brother, 
you that are hidden away among the stuff, making a failure of the best things of life in the great kingly qualities of the soul. God has not forgotten you. He has not lost track of you. He has not lost his interest in you. He watches over you where you are hidden, and he inspires our hearts with courage and with sympathy to seek after you and bring you forth, if possible, to be crowned again as the Son of God. And we who are seeking to save men must never forget that, however repulsive and discouraging the pile of stuff that may be hidden upon a sinful soul, there is a king in hiding there, and if we can but arouse the nobler self into action, we may save him. Cornell Richard Hinton relates a very interesting little story of how he was walking once in Boston with Walt Whitman, the poet. It was at night, and as they passed along, they saw a figure slouching toward them as if half afraid. The poet threw a massive arm out as if startled when he caught the fellow's face in the shadows. Why, Jack, he cried, and drew him close with a kiss on the forehead. The man was evidently a hard case. His dress was disordered and his face haggard. Colonel Hinton instinctively drew away to a seat nearby. Evidently in bitter trouble, the man almost clung to the stalwart arm that was about his shoulder. Some money passed and words were whispered. Then he noticed the man straighten his figure as Whitman again kissed his forehead, and he walked away quickly, saying firmly as he did so, I will, Walt, I will. They passed on. They did not talk about him that night, but the next morning the poet briefly said at breakfast that Jack was a Long Island boy whom he had known in his youth. Jack had been reckless and was fleeing from officers who were after him for stabbing a companion in a drunken brawl. The wounded man was recovering. Years afterward, Colonel Hinton was mustered out of the volunteer army and went to live in Washington. Whitman was one of the noted personalities there and they renewed their friendship. One day, in the Department of Justice, where Whitman was records clerk, Hinton was sitting by his desk when the poet looked up suddenly and handed him a faded tintype of a private soldier and said, Do you think you have ever seen that face? It was a shrewd, sharp visage, coarse but strong in outline, and with something of a hunted look in the eyes. He shook his head and the poet remarked, That's Jack. Boston Common, you know. He was killed at Peach Orchard. A good soldier, too. It is Christ's assurance that there is the making of a good soldier for the great battle of life in any poor sinful man if he be only willing to surrender at the cross and enlist in the army of the Lord. Christ knows how to find the king hidden under all the stuff of sin and bring him out to a new chance. I fear that we often gather so much form and ceremony and outward show about our Christian churches and our Christian service that we lose sight of the great fact that the one thing for which all these things exist is to save lost men and women. Thirty years ago, a businessman in Peoria, Illinois met a friend, William Reynolds, also a prominent businessman in that city, and said to him, Mr. Reynolds, how long have we known each other? About 15 years. Do you believe that it is necessary for me to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ if I am to be saved? Yes. Do you care whether or not I am saved? Certainly. 
Pardon my frankness. I do not want to hurt your feelings, but I do not believe that you care at all whether I am saved or lost. What do you mean? You are a professing Christian, an officer in the church. We have met frequently during the last 15 years. I have heard you speak on many topics. We have had many conversations. I would have listened gladly to you if you had spoken to me on the subject of religion, and yet in 15 years you have never said one word about my salvation. You have never tried to win my soul to Christ. I cannot believe that you care whether I am saved or lost. Mr. Reynolds, with shame, confessed that he had neglected his opportunities and then said to his friend, What has wrought this change in you? I was in Chicago yesterday, and when I started to come home, a young man asked if he might share my seat. As soon as the train began to move, the conversation, started by him, ran something like this. Pleasant day? Yes. Good crops this year? Yes, pretty good. We ought to be thankful to the Lord for sending good crops. Yes, I suppose we should. My friend, are you a Christian? Well, I have a high regard for religion. I think churches are a good thing in a community. Are you a Christian? Well, I cannot say that I am, now that you ask the direct question. Do you think it wise for a thoughtful man to go on for years without giving thought to this subject? No, honestly, I do not think it wise. My friend, may I pray with you? Why, if we are ever where there is a good opportunity and you desire to do so, I do not think I would object. There will never be a better opportunity than the present. Let us bow our heads here behind this car seat. And with the train speeding through the suburbs of Chicago and across the prairie, this man prayed for my salvation. I never saw a man so much in earnest. I know that he cared whether I was saved or lost. Just as he finished his prayer, the brakeman called out the name of a station and my new-made friend was off. He had reached the door when it occurred to me that I did not even know who he was. I rushed after him and asked his name. And he replied, D.L. Moody. I am going back to Chicago to find him and to have him show me the way of life. Before Mr. Reynolds left his friend that morning, he had led him to Christ. And then Mr. Reynolds said, I am going to Chicago myself to find Mr. Moody. There is something wrong with my life. A gentleman who had heard of this incident was on the Pacific coast years after that and meeting a man from Peoria, Illinois, inquired of him, Do you know William Reynolds of your city? I know him well. What is his business? The people who know him best say that his business is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he packs pork to pay expenses. Mr. Reynolds himself had become a great soul saver, and he has given his life to pull into the light kings whom he has found hidden amid the stuff of sin and folly. I am sure there are some who hear me at this time who are in just such a case as Saul. God has called you to a noble manhood or a holy womanhood, but you have turned a deaf ear to the call and have hidden yourself amid the trumpery of the world. I come as God's messenger to call you back to your high destiny. God has not forgotten you. 
Christ has died to redeem you. The Holy Spirit will comfort and inspire you. Christian friends will give you fellowship. Shake off the follies that have covered you and come forth with earnest purpose to fill the great and worthy place to which God has called you as his child. End of chapter 22